Amen. Greetings to all of you in Jesus' name. I count it a privilege to be here this morning. And uh, thinking back over the years of uh, Brother John and his family and having had much interaction over the years, more so in the past than recent, but nevertheless many fond memories, and we uh, chose not to speak on leadership. We kind of figure our brother John knows enough of what what that's about and his experience and his uh, understanding of it. We would sense that over the years, and uh, thankful, brother, for your faithfulness and the contribution that you have made to the church at Harmony. And also here. And so we uh, commit you again to God, fresh and new today, and thankful for having this privilege. I'm hoping this morning that uh, I will not be offensive to anyone with the message that I have to preach or that I felt led to preach. It's one that has been kind of an unusual um, inspiration to me as I came across the history and uh, scripture concerning this subject. And so uh, let us proceed this morning. Again, like I say, we're hoping that uh, we understand that this time of the year there's a lot of variation as to how, view, how men view this time of year. Some have taken a very strong stand, negative to anything that has to do with the birth of Christ around the 25th of December. Others have tried to divide the good from the bad, the heathen from the the scripture, and try to celebrate it in a in a scriptural manner or a more godly manner. And then, of course, others just mix the festivities all together both heathen and, and Christian and, and with such confusion that, uh, that one hardly knows um, uh, what to think, and, uh, but often very disappointing and disgusting. But uh, we have taken a, a bit of a uh, openness to it, especially in the latter years in the past. We had individuals in the church who were greatly offended if, Anything was mentioned uh, at this time of year, but we don't have that today, and so therefore I've chosen to speak on this subject. And one of the main reasons is, is we drive around the country and receive cards from businesses. We often uh, see uh, three wise men on on a card uh, that comes to our mail through our mailbox. And we have these manger scenes, which I believe are false, that show three wise men that appear at a manger and kneel down, uh, worshiping the Lord Jesus and uh, 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 giving their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Hopefully, we can go to the scripture this morning and clear up some of these misconceptions and speak what the Bible does speak concerning the wise men. Like I say, I found this to be greatly inspiring to me. I have uh, quite a bit of reading or some history to give in this matter, so I'll be referring to some uh, notes here in, uh, in giving some history concerning the possibilities. I'm going to step out on a limb a bit and uh, use a little bit of... Uh, uh, Imagination, maybe, or skepticism, uh, how would I say, uh, assumption, as I uh, uh, have reached c- the conclusions in my own heart about these men, and uh, that I cannot prove uh, 100%, but nevertheless, to me, uh, makes a lot of sense. So with that, uh, I encourage you all to stand and turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read most of that chapter Matthew chapter 2. 
Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, this is the wise men, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, amazing to me. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. May I quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2, if I can by memory. For thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the cities of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth he that shall be ruler in Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they were open, had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, uh, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And when there, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken of by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. You may be seated. Should maybe bow our heads in prayer just a bit. I should have done that while standing, maybe. But once again, we come to you, Lord Jesus, and ask for wisdom this morning as we look into this great scripture, great prophecy, and the fulfillment of it. And ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom that we may have understanding in thy word and see the great truths that you have given to us this day. Who were in Jesus' name, amen. Who were the wise men? I sang, uh, picked that song, Star of the East. I appreciate that song. 
just as it lays out the great travel that these men took in search uh, of this king that they believed to be born. Now, I want to remind you, first of all, here at the beginning, as we think about who the wise men were, that God in his divine province has revealed his will and truth and even prophecy to some Gentiles way beyond that of which unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem did not have. We have some of that with Cornelius when you know the vision came to Peter uh, when the sheet came down with all manner of beasts on it and uh, had to prepare him to go and share the the finishing touches of the gospel when he had all the preliminaries already but to baptize him and to have uh, an open door there into the Gentile world to include them also into the gospel. We have even Balaam. If I can remind you of him, even though he was an apostate, he gave prophecy concerning the star of Jacob that was to come. And so, and other men, uh, we have the centurion who uh, had a greater faith than all those in Israel. And so we know that God had prophesied that the Gentiles would see thy light and come to the, to, to the understanding of the gospel and of the glory of God back in the book of Isaiah. So here and there we have uh, just a little bit of this here and there in the scripture. And here now we have the birth of Christ coming in, in, in Bethlehem of Judea. And who shows up but a couple of, uh, a number perhaps of Gentiles. I don't believe there was three. That's uh, assumed by the gifts of three that they gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But uh, so I don't believe it was three. I expect it was kind of a group of them, an entourage that came from the east. Where did it come from? We're not sure. But as you listen to my message, you may, like me, have at least a little bit of an idea where these men may have come from. All of us have wondered, perhaps, in reading this scripture, I trust we have, who were these men? How did they know? How did they get a copy of the scriptures of the Old Testament? It's evident in Matthew chapter 2 that they had the scriptures. They had the prophecies, even of Micah. They had the book of Micah. They had other books, I believe, of the Old Testament in their, uh, that were extant in their day. And this to us is amazing that they knew these things beyond that which of the Jews in Jerusalem. The only ones that we know that were awakened to the prophecy there was uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and Mary, of course, in divine revelation. And we have an old man by the name of Simeon. He understood the prophecies of old, and waited for the glory of God likewise. The shepherds, of course, they would have had a revelation out of heaven in a bright light coming and shining and an announcement of Christ's birth there, and they ran down to Bethlehem also to see him. Uh, Other than that, it's amazing to us that the people who should have known did not know, but were steeped in ignorance and darkness, because our hearts were darkened by unbelief. A great lesson to us, which I feel the same is true in our day, that with the prophecies that are spoken concerning the second appearance, today in the evangelical world, I understand that the, that the concept of the second coming of Jesus Christ is waning among the people. They don't preach it. They don't want to talk about it. It's unsettling to them as far as the uh, the world as they know it. And it just seems like many churches are dropping the subject. Not good. Let us be wise as Simeon was and others to understand the times in which we are living. How many were there? Were there really kings? Did they really ride on camels? Why did they come to Bethlehem? And uh, like I say, uh, too many people today, they go by the scenes which they've seen in Christmas cards or a major scene 
rather than uh, uh, the scriptures and what is unknown, let that be unknown uh, concerning some of those details. Vincent, who has written some very helpful word studies, says in regard to this, many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular belief in the Christian art. They were said to be kings and to be three in number. But, uh, and let me see, uh, I have that, I think, a little bit later. Yes, I'll have that a little bit later. Some of the bizarre um, theories and ideas that have been thrown out concerning these men, these three men, is that they were direct descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They even go so far as to coloring the one man dark because Ham, of course, is thought to be the father of the Ethiopians. And so they go so far as uh, showing one of the three to be a dark man. The names that have been given them is Caspar, Belshazzar, and Melkor. You might have heard that. In the 12th century, a man by the name of Bishop Reinhold of Cologne, Germany, actually dug up three uh, skulls somewhere and claimed them to be the skulls of the wise men. And the reason that he gave was the fact that the sockets of their eyes were turned toward Bethlehem. Believe it or not, they are an exhibit in a priceless casket in a great cathedral in Europe to this day. And I understand, I mean, though I don't haven't heard which cathedral this is, but that you can go and see these skulls. Now, the history, Matthew is the only one that gives us the account and the history of these men. The others are silent on it. Being a historian like he is and and uh, carrying that the history uh, quite a bit throughout his book, it is interesting that he took this uh, the task of making this known to us. So if we put the pieces together here this morning, I think you will find some very fascinating history. In the Old Testament books, such as Daniel, we have what is known as the Magi. The Magi. These were sorcerers, Chaldeans, and uh, men of uh, interpreting dreams. And they also, I believe, would have been stargazers or astrologers at that time. And so we have these men showed up there. And I think uh, they might have been referred to a little bit uh, uh, beforehand in Scripture. And uh, But as I understand in history that uh, these men, uh, we believe they were members of an Eastern priestly group. They were descendants of a tribe of people originally associated with the Medes. You remember the the Medes and the Persians that had overtaken Babylon. And we have these uh, these men, these Magi or Magi, uh, showing up in the Babylonian kingdom and again in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And you have them down through history and even into to, uh, the um, Roman Empire. But, uh, yeah, there are four major world empires, uh, according to the prophecies of Daniel, that Daniel was able to give there in uh, in uh, Daniel 2. The first one was the Babylonian Empire, and uh, they had settled in the Fertile Crescent uh, Valley there, east of Israel, in the valley of the Tigris and the Euphrates River, north of the Arabian Gulf, as we uh, know is uh, uh, what we know today, uh, I think it would be Iraq. Uh, there was there the that's where the Babylonian Empire was. It was followed by the Second Great World Empire that Daniel talks about, and that was the empire known as the Medo Persian Empire. It was a conglomerate empire made up of Persians and the Medes. The Medes were a large and very powerful people. 
The third great world empire was Greece, as Alexander the Great overtook the Medo-Persian Empire in Babylon and in that area, and of course became a very powerful uh, but short-lived uh, emperor there of, as Alexander the Great died as a young man, and the kingdom was divided to his four generals. And that brings us to the Roman Empire. The fourth great empire was the Roman Empire. Now, if we go backwards, even while the Roman Empire was in existence, there were still Medes and Persians. So they are very ancient people. In fact, there are many people in history who trace the origin of the Medes all the way back to the time of Abraham in the land of Ur of the Chaldees. And you remember there in Babylon, they were called, these Magi were called Chaldeans. And so we know that they seem to have connections all the way back there. Um, So certainly... They are people who appear in the Babylonian Empire because we see them in the book of Daniel. They are people from the Medo-Persian Empire and existed on to the time of the Greek Empire and are still in existence in the Roman Empire when Christ was born. So they're very ancient, very long-lived people. Were these wise men? And by the way, the word wise men in verse 2 uh, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men, the King James Version says. But if you go into the uh, Elberfelder version of the, uh, of the uh, German translation, which I'm familiar with, we have the actual word magi. The Greek is magos or magoi or magi or magi. It is really an untranslatable word. And uh, uh, simply the name of a certain tribe of people. However, because of what they practiced in their uh, sorcery and dream interpretation and trying to find out the unknown and astrology, studying the stars and what have you, they, uh, it's where our word magic comes from today. So we, uh, we understand that uh, it's kind of corrupted through history into the word magic or magician, uh, and which is a synonym for sorcerer. But as we know it through history in the original Greek, they were called not wise men, even though they were considered for their wisdom. They were called magi. But the magi were basically a pagan priestly tribe of people from the Medes and Persians, and there were many, many historical sources to validate this. Now, that's outside of the Bible. I have to give that. Uh, Herodotus, I think, and different historians uh, wrote concerning these uh, magi and uh, gives us a little history. They, uh, they were interested in astronomy and astrology. Now, let me tell you the difference if you've never heard that. Astrology is the the heathen interpretation or study of the stars, or the unbeliever, you might say. And we have today the 12 signs of zodiac, which we reject uh, completely because they, they are from the witchcraft or from the sorcerers uh, that have adapted those 12 signs. And, uh, and it has to do with uh, the study of the stars, and each one means something different. And if you were born in a certain sign, then uh, you should take on a certain characteristics, is what they say. But alongside of that, we have astronomy. Astronomy is the true study of stars. And men through the ages uh, have done this. They have studied the stars and... and uh, I understand. I, I have not been able to do the research on it for this message like I would have liked to, but I understand that to this day, major changes in world history would have always been detectable somewhat by the study of true astronomy and by somehow the various aligning of planets and so on. And uh, we hear a lot about that today in the near future. There will be and are already uh, certain aligning of planets that they believe influences the 
magnetic currents of the earth. And like I say, I'm not into that a lot, but I understand that uh, astronomy is still a very interesting thing and a right thing to to uh, perhaps do or be involved in that I would not be against. Uh, so, uh, but originally they were a pagan priest, priestly tribe. What is, uh, and I just like to say for now, what is interesting to me, that is, though you have the scribes, Pharisees, and, uh, and, and uh, the doctors of the law, who, uh, who should have known all this. And God brought a revelation in the midst of a heathen, even sorcery-type people, and allowed them to become believers. Now, that is amazing to me, and shows the great mercy of God, and how he hovers over with his spirit upon people and... Uh, and, and, and reveals himself to them. I had an amazing, uh, uh, story on Tuesday night as we have a bit of a family chat line on my, with my immediate family. And my brother told me that he had visited a dear friend of mine many years ago, uh, a Beachy bishop in Indiana who I respected very highly and loved to hear him preach. And he was a godly man as far as I knew. I knew him and his wife and, and uh, heard him different times. And uh, they got into church trouble. And he, uh, he walked out of that church when he had a committee brought in to try to straighten out the trouble. Uh, another bishop told him, don't you ever come back again. And he went out into sin, the world, and drinking and so forth. Uh, his wife left him due to all of it, I think. And as uh, far as I know, did not remarry, stayed single and all that. And here we are 40-some years later. And I hear he's in an old people's home today in Wakaroos, Indiana. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, gives the story of God in his mercy, sending an angel or some presence to sit on the side of his bed and invite him back to follow him. And he first said, I've gone too far, I can't do it. And he changed, finally, after hearing a voice saying, yes, you can, I'll take you back. Uh, he repented, and today sits there, and his wife has been restored to him, and goes to see him and care for him some there in the old people's home. And I don't understand the mercy of God, you know, in uh, what he did to these men. And uh, with such a background, we would say, they have so much evil in them. What do we have to do with them? You know, but in his mercy, somehow, some way, truth came to these men to where they believed the scriptures better than Israel. It's a real lesson to me, real inspiration to me, and how we should... uh, be likewise that way, open to the truth, believing the truth, expecting that that which is written will surely come to pass. Don't doubt it. So, uh, the science of astronomy, uh, is the science of the stars is astronomy and the superstition of it is astrology. So remember to keep that difference. So they were dwelling originally there in the book of Daniel in the Medo-Persian Empire or in the Babylonian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire took over, of course, and were there as well in that same area. Somewhere in the east, Babylon, if you look at the maps today where Babylon was, it's almost directly east, I think, of uh, Jerusalem. And so, uh, but at quite a distance from uh, Jerusalem. So during the the Babylonian Empire, we have to conclude the fact that these magi were majorly challenged and influenced by Daniel and his friends. And uh, I'd like to go through that just a little bit. Uh, they they were there. They were high-ranking officials. They were highly respected by the kings like Nebuchadnezzar and 
and Belshazzar and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, the, uh, the scripture says son, I understand it's actually grandson, maybe, and, uh, and so these men respected them, and when they had a dream, and they had something unusual happen, they would call the Chaldeans and the Magi, Magi, I'm not sure which way to say that, so I interchange it a bit, excuse me for that, uh, uh, they called these men to interpret the dreams for them. And, uh, and so in that all, we all know if we can uh, go back into the book of Daniel, which we maybe uh, give that story a little bit, because in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had his original dreams of the of the, the big statue and the head of gold, and, and he hadn't remembered the dream, as you know, and he called all these men, and they couldn't interpret the dream, and he was so upset that he put out a death sentence for the whole bunch. And that included Daniel. Daniel was somehow numbered with them as being uh, uh, in the king's palace there and, and so on. And so Daniel said, wait a minute, don't let this man be so hasty. And he went to a messenger and sent him to the king and ask for a little time and I'll tell you the dream. And, and you know that God gave him the dream and he went before the king and gave him the vision as clear as a bell. And, and, and he believed it and understood that. And in that way, saved the life of all uh, uh, the Magi. Now, I would expect that at that time, there was a major influence in the Magi's life, the whole bunch of them. Because first of all, they saw a power they didn't have a power that was greater than them. And second of all, they they saw that there's a God in heaven. They got introduced to a God in heaven. And it reminds me of uh, some of the um, uh, uh, witch doctors over the years that have not uh, tried to curse the missionaries, weren't able to do it, and came to the uh, uh, acute discovery of the fact that there's a power greater than them. And some of them have become believers through that. That's uh, that's a blessing and amazing. And that's what I accept, expect that happened, although they weren't ready to leave their sorcery and leave all their uh, astrology and so on and uh, and become believers. Nevertheless, they they left there, I believe, or out of that scene with a respect. Well, then here comes another dream with... Uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and once again, uh, memory was given of what Daniel did the last time, so Daniel was called into the scene again, and here we have how that uh, uh, the tree would be cut off at the, at the stump, and yet the stump remained, and it, it ended up being that Nebuchadnezzar uh, would become an animal and grow feathers and, and, and long nails and what have you, and eat grass uh, like an ox, so what the Bible says, and... Uh, and he was afraid, I mean, he, he was fearful of what Nebuchadnezzar might do when he, he told him that. But uh, And he said, you know, let this be to your enemy and so on. But I don't have time to go in and read all that. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar honored him because of that and put him at the chief of all, the, of all those men. He was the head man then of the Magi. And so... Uh, uh, you know, he just slumped them all together. These men uh, interpret dreams and understand mysteries and study the stars and whatever else. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, being a heathen man, just kind of lumped them all together. Well, very interesting also then that we want to notice out of the book of Daniel. Yeah, if we, uh, let me see, I should um, I should read a little bit out of Daniel 9 because there was a lot of interaction with Daniel. And uh, uh, and the next kings, likewise, when when Belshazzar uh, got the handwriting on the wall uh, with the the hand saying thou uh, thou art numbered, uh, thy days are numbered, uh, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting, uh, that uh, uh, that again was interpreted by the man Daniel. And again, the magicians and, and all the uh, soothsayers and, and Chaldeans couldn't interpret it. So just over and over again, these men had this witness that God is God and he is able to interpret dreams. And it was a power greater than them. But so now they were, uh, they were pretty acquainted with this man, Daniel. And back in Daniel 9, I want to show you, because I believe what happened 
was that the book of Daniel, I didn't research this in detail, but I believe the book of Daniel was written and left in Babylon. I see it no other way. I believe that's where it all happened. That's where Daniel did all this. And I believe it was written down there. And perhaps him or his friends or whatever wrote it all down uh, uh, before they died. And we all know that this was a 70-year captivity in Babylon. And then the Jews went back. But a large number, not even half of them went back but a large number stayed there, were scattered into the known world at that time. So we had had the book of Daniel, at least, ended up with other books of the New Testament over there, uh, which is evident because these men 600 years later still had that. And uh, also that, uh, that uh, uh, they uh, were, uh, were uh, mathematicians. Now, this is interesting when you read chapter 9 of Daniel. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and anoint the most holy. Know therefore... And understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, mark that, the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, or sixty-nine weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore... And two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the, the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, if these men were mathematicians, were good at it, then they knew when Messiah would be born. Now, that is interesting to me. These, These 70 weeks are weeks of years. We all know that, that that actually came to pass. That from Artaxerxes' commandment to go and to build Jerusalem, and I understand that today God has given that gift of mathematics more to certain people, and that they're at, they were, have been able to calculate, and that is exactly from that day can be counted to the birth of Christ and uh, his crucifixion and so on. Now, this is just amazing to me because what all happened in that 600 years, we don't know. But now we determine, as we'll go back then a little bit to Matthew chapter 2, we'll notice that they had the scriptures. They had the book of Daniel, is obvious that they did. They had the book of Micah. And who all knows what other books they had, whereby they understood having been introduced to the power of God back there 600 years before in the time of Daniel and his three friends, they were introduced to this power. And could it be, could it be that a few of them, even though they were in a group, in a tribe of priestly men and so on, would have kept the truth of that matter and a book written among them 600 years? I say it's possible. Those things happened in those days. You know, sometimes the book of the law had disappeared for quite a long time. As you remember there in Josiah, they found the book of the law stuck away somewhere in a dusty corner of the temple or in a cabinet or closet of some kind. And they dug it out and read it and revived and repented. And uh, it didn't last long, but nevertheless, uh, 
That was a marvelous revival, one of the greatest ones in the Old Testament under Josiah because they found the book of the law again. So they were able to write things down in books and rewrite them in books that I think they've been able, because we know in Christ's time, they had all those Old Testament books. They had the prophecies of Isaiah. They had the prophecies of Micah also and others. They had the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And so all those things were preserved in writing and were able to be handed down all those years. I think the same is true. These men, they were smart men. They were wise men. They knew how to preserve truth. They had laid hold of truth, and I believe it was the influences of a godly man like Daniel that transferred this truth to them and proved that it was greater than what they had, and they, some of them latched hold of it. Some of them latched hold of it. So now, they, not, they had the promise of a Messiah. They had the promise that he was the king of the Jews. They had the scripture in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as to exactly where. And, and so now they knew where and they knew when. And therefore they were able uh, to look for him when that time come. Now the other thing is we, we don't know what all is this matter of astronomy. That is a bit of a mystery. But we also know that a star appeared in the east. And uh, they saw that star and they interpreted that star if they would follow that, would lead them to the place where this new king was born. They understood it was a baby. It didn't matter to them at all. They weren't looking for a king to just show up on a white horse like he will in the future. But they were looking for a baby. They were looking. And it was no surprise at all when they found him that they responded the way they did and bowed down their knee and worshipped that child and gave him gifts and honored him as the king of the Jews, or rather king of kings and lord of lords, because they had him as their king, I believe, in their own hearts. And that, to me, is an amazing thing. So, they had Jewish scriptures. They had, and the other thing is, we don't know how great the influence of the dispersed Jews would have been in the, in the land of Medo-Persia and Babylon. You know, like I say, they never returned. A large group of them never returned. So there was also, I believe, of them that didn't return that were believers and believed the Scriptures and perhaps could have also been a godly influence in the land that the heathen could have uh, benefited from that for many years just from them being there. The testimony to us today and the challenge to me is the men and women of influence that we should be. And... uh in our lives, in our daily life, in our ministries, in our whatever we do, that we are men of influence, though we get stuck in the middle of a bunch of heathen people, yet even there we can be a powerful influence for the glory of God. Now, like I said, the ancient historian Herodotus, he talks about this Magi, that they were a tribe of people, uh, with a larger people within uh, the Medes, and uh, they were a hereditary priesthood tribe, and they were like the Levites. I understand that according to this, it was almost a duplication of what they had in Israel. They had priests, they had sacrifices, they had uh, um, burnt sacrifices, they had a perpetual fire that was burning, and they would take off the perpetual fire to light the sacrifices that they did. And the animal sacrifices, they had beliefs that certain animals were unclean. I believe they probably got that from the Jews or from the Old Testament scriptures. So there were certain things they wouldn't touch. They wouldn't touch a dead body uh, normally. Uh, and there was the priests, especially this priestly clan. If they were a part of that, they were like the Levites. They were had a law, and uh, we have reference made to the law of the Medes and Persians. And I understand that they were the ones who made that law historically. I think some of these historians uh, talk about this. So over over these six hundred years, they had that. They were. Um, it's just uh, very interesting to see how this all uh, could have come 
come about. And like I say, though we don't know distinctly how these men got it, they could have also got it by divine revelation because God can do that and has done it in the past. But uh, because they knew the scriptures, I uh, I have come to the conclusion that, that they believed them. They believed what they read and what they had among them and considered it true. And therefore, uh, with great expectation, followed through with these things. Uh, let me see here. They were uh, people have called them kings. I, I'm not sure uh, if if the scripture calls them kings, rather just wise men. But they were kind of a kingly sort. And I understand in the Medo Persian Empire, no leader would have ever been installed without uh, their approval. They were that powerful in the country. And uh, they had a, a blood sacrificial system also, and uh, they burned their sacrifice and, and ate some of it by the worshipers and by the priests, very much a duplication of the Jewish system, almost a direct parallel uh, to Judaism. But somehow... In that, some of them had the genuine worship toward the one true God. And even though, uh, in general, there was a lot of phony monotheism, phony blood sacrifice, false sacrifice, and all that going on, but like we all know that even in heathen lands, individuals believe the truth, and, and these were men who did, however many they were. Now, uh, let me see... Uh, you want to hear next? Let's uh, go back to uh, to uh, Matthew chapter two. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now, we assume that this had to be some months after Jesus was born. Because when they finally found him, they found him in a house, not in a manger, or not in a stable. And so, uh, in accuracy here, as we understand Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was born, and when he was born, then afterwards. And the other thing is the travel. If the star or the bright lights shining for the shepherds and a star would have appeared over there, and they would have seen that star from the east, whether they traveled by horses, which some think they may have, or by camel, it would have taken a number of, of weeks, perhaps, to make that trip, because it was not uh, a close uh, proximity to Jerusalem. So we believe that they actually had their search there uh, uh, over a couple months. And you know, it's just amazing to me. How could it be that that bright light and that star shone like it did and all these Jews never saw it? You know, it's just amazing to me that when you're blind, you're blind. And when you don't want to see, you don't want to see. And I, and we have the evidence of that later on that, that uh, you know, their eyes, they have closed, Jesus said. And they decided we don't want to see him. We don't want a king. Uh, Caesar's our king. You know, is what they said at the crucifixion and things like that. We have no king but Caesar. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to believe the scriptures that were written in Daniel concerning the Messiah coming. Now, they had their own ideas that the Messiah would come as a ruling king and that he would uh, he would deliver them from the hand of the Romans and they had their own fabrication of it. But they missed it completely uh, for the most part because of the fact they didn't believe the scriptures. All right, the second verse, saying, Where is he that is born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Somehow, we don't know how, they knew that the star was not just an ordinary star and that they just went to search out what this strange star is over there, but it was his star. They knew what the announcement was. And I think they put their 
that together in their mathematical abilities and were able to say that this is the announcement of the Messiah being born as a child, uh, <coughs> like the scriptures taught, and therefore we're going to go and uh, and find him and worship him. I just think it's the most marvelous attitude we could ever imagine, even for us today. Have you bowed your knee and worshipped him in truth and in honor, giving him his rightful place in your heart and in your life? Have you ever in privacy uh, worshipped him as the King of kings and Lord of lords? I had a tremendous challenge and a wake-up call in my life at where I desired that, and I said, Lord, I I believe you, I trust in you, and I want what is best for my life. It doesn't matter what you do with me. I want to serve you. I want to do what's right, and whatever that may cost. And I had a, a real dedication to that King of Kings in, as I bowed my knee in privacy before him. And I encourage that for everyone, to lay your life out. Lay your life out before this great king and to give yourself as a, as a servant to him, to do what he would have you to do and to make a dent in society by your testimony and ministry and life and, and whatever God calls you to do, which uh, can vary greatly. All right. But they called him the king of the Jews. And, uh, so, they got into Jerusalem, and I don't understand. There was apparently, they followed the star. We have seen his star in the east, it says. So apparently they followed the star, at least into Jerusalem, and it must have disappeared for a time, it appears. And so they went in here in Jerusalem. I think this was divine order. This is what God wanted. And they begin to say, where is he that is born of the king of the Jews? Where is this child? We understand that there was a birth of a child that is to be the king of the Jews. And when Herod heard that, he was petrified. The reason was that he had weaseled his way into Caesar Augustus' life and had asked him to be anointed king of Israel and or king of the Jews. He was at half to halfway in between Rome and the Jews, and so the Jews never had the nation themselves. They were under Caesar, and uh, and yet they were kind of a satellite nation, and Herod was given jurisdiction over the Jews, and so he was considered king of the Jews. And when these wise men showed up, these magi, and said, where is he that is king of the Jews, that is born king of the Jews? He was terrified, and let me tell you why. There was a war in B.C. 41. There was one in 57 where they contended. Rome was spread so far. And uh, and uh, they always did have trouble, I understand, various times in direct confrontation somewhere around the Holy Lands there or the Middle East between the Medes and Persians and maybe ex-Babylonians or whatever and the Roman Empire. So they kind of feared that they've never really had them under suppression like they wished they would have. Now, some of those men show up, and it might have been 25 of them, who knows. You know, it might have been 50 of them. A whole group of them show up and said, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's army wasn't home at the time. They were away on some other battle, and he was terrified. Now, he was a ruthless man, and some of the things he had done to his mother and his his sons and having them killed because he feared his son would try to overthrow him. And he was paranoid. He was a wicked man and all that. And so therefore you have him saying, all right, uh, uh, where is he inquired of these wise men? Where is he that, uh, where is he to be born? And they quoted Micah five two and said, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem. And he said, well, go find him and then come bring me word again quick that I may come and worship him. The biggest lie that he could have said. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to go kill him. And then the star appeared again and led them right to where the house was that where the young child lie. I just I'm fascinated by that whole thing. How uh, these honest, God-fearing men who believed and knew the scripture and knew it was to be in Bethlehem, 
Well, anyway, a decree goes out shortly after. Anyway, they found him. Let me not get ahead of my story. And they bowed down and worshipped him, gave him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were very pricely. And I understand some of these gifts were higher than gold and so on. And they uh, they gave it their best, it seems like, and honored this child as a baby and knelt down and worshipped him as a king. Imagine their faith to kneel down before a baby declaring him to be the king. But anyway, Herod, you know, was terrified and he, uh, he did what he did here in putting out a decree that all the the children from two years and younger were to be killed in Bethlehem and all the suburbs around there, all the area around Judea, around close to Bethlehem. And the reason was it might have been six months old. Jesus might have been, you know, four to six months old till they got there, at least uh, months old. And uh, and he just went at two years on down to make sure he gets him. And there's where we have the uh, women Weeping the voice in Rhema, lamentation and weeping, uh, weeping for their children. And they were not because the soldiers had come, the Roman soldiers under his decree, and killed them. Well, um, yeah, I think I have said, but uh, I'm just so impressed by the fact that uh, of how they knew the scriptures and how there's a possibility that all these things were uh, uh, were given to them uh, to have this kind of understanding, this kind of literal interpretation and understanding of prophecy and of the Scripture. It's a real lesson to me. I I personally don't need a lot of encouragement to believe prophecy. I I love prophecy and I uh, I appreciate it a lot. But this is a great encouragement to me to see that these men of this background had this kind of wisdom and, and believing the literal interpretation when the Jews had it all mixed up and didn't get it right and, and all that. Uh, well, uh, let's see if there was something else here yet in my notes. The challenge that I have in the closing comments that I would like to make is, first of all, believe the record that God gave for his son. The second I have is be people of influence. Though you get in a job site where you have a bunch of ungodly men and in our construction workers and all that, we all seem to get into that scene be men of influence. And that would be my encouragement to my brother John. John, be a man of influence. You rub shoulders with the public a lot there in your work. And uh, like many of us do, let us be men of influence. Let us be women of influence. Not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And uh, I would especially say that as we look into the future. And we have all these prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ and how he's going to come. Not when, but nevertheless allowed to know the times and seasons. We are children of the light, children of the day. That day should not overtake us as a thief, but rather we should know the approximate arrival time of our Lord and Savior. And if again, you go to Matthew 24, one of my favorite passages of scripture concerning these things along with the more detailed one in Revelation and Thessalonians. We have many of these things given in clear chronological order. If we are uh, believers of the scripture, that they should not overtake us as a thief. So may, uh, may that uh, be a blessing to us. May that encourage our hearts today and also that we don't Go for the um, traditional interpretation of the three wise men and and uh, just make a, a commercial thing out of it. Uh, I reject that part, but the scripture gives us a clear uh, picture of this matter, and let us uh, take that. And I I'm not one for believing that it has to be this time of year or anything. I 
I uh, I would rather believe, I understand that Christ would have been born in the spring, more like in April, because that's when the shepherds would have had their sheep out in the pasture, not in December, and so on. But uh, when they finally arrived, uh, it could have been quite a bit later, and we don't know when that was. But So I'm not for, I believe, the 25th of December has come about from heathen influence and the whole mixture, and I'm not for that. But nevertheless, I believe that a person can uh, uh, worship the Lord in truth and in honor that he came and uh, as a baby and that he was a king. And we can bow our knee uh, at the birth by, by simply believing the record that God has given of his son. So may God bless you and, and uh, again, wish a blessing upon the church here. We love you as a church, as a fellow ch- uh, sister church in that way or a uh, uh, one of the uh, number of churches now that we have to relate to, and we appreciate that and wish our blessing upon Brother John and your family, Sister Beverly, and uh, children to be loyal and faithful, build the kingdom of God. May God add his blessings.